Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. I'm joined this week again with Dr. Smith to discuss what is classically called natural theology. Last time Dr. Smith was with us, we discussed philosophical apologetics and discussed what we could know by reason. I want to caution our listeners today, this podcast is going to be intense and a bit heady. Uh, but it is the mental workout we need to do to engage the irrationality and erroneous views uh, we can experience in our ever-growing secular world. So, Dr. Smith, over, over the centuries, Christian theologians, they've developed this set of philosophical arguments to augment and support theology, um, which, they, which was commonly called classical theism or even natural theology. Um, how does this kind of natural theology operate? Kind of, what is it, and uh, what is its function uh, for us? Thank you, Jason. Well, this is one of my uh, favorite uh, topics. It's a topic. Uh, my one of my favorite classes to teach is a class uh, sometimes called um, uh, philosophical theology or natural theology. Um, what's contained in that class, as you indicated, is often called uh, classical theism. And this is a, a collection, really a tradition, uh, that's been developed through the centuries by Christian theologians, uh, predominantly Catholic, but also some Protestant theologians contributing as well, uh, that tries to stake out and develop ideas, uh, concepts, and arguments that can augment um, sacred theology. So one thing I think it's important to, to get straight here at the beginning is that although it's true that natural theology um, does have an apologetic function. Okay, so I think that's important. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not, I don't think it's primary function. I think it's primary function is, as I say, to augment um, sacred theology. So really, uh, natural theology should be done as, as something subordinate to and attached to um, sacred theology. So St. Thomas in that first question, the Summa, talks about the role of philosophical argument in sacred theology. And he says that, you know, sacred theology is, um, you know, based on uh, divine revelation, especially that's contained in scripture. And that, uh, but that, the, and that while that is um, sufficient in itself, that nevertheless, philosophical arguments can be used because they're well adapted to our way of learning. So really, um, you know, philosophy um, um, and natural theology in particular is, uh, is useful to the Christian, certainly for its apologetic value, and we can talk about that in a little bit, um, but also just as something that augments and supports uh, sacred doctrine. Right. So, for example, we can know, uh, or we know through supernatural revelation, through the revelation of Jesus Christ, that God exists. Right. Uh, and he is the fulfillment of God's revelation. But we can also know through natural theology that God exists. That's and right. We can't take it a step further and, and, you know, we cannot know, you know, that God is love maybe. And we cannot uh, know Jesus Christ is God through natural uh, theology. Um, but, but, but there are those things in supernatural theology that we can also know in natural theology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, what what is it? So, for example, like what did, what are some of the, the the main arguments that natural theology brings kind of brings to the table for uh, sacred theology? 
Well, probably the two most uh, important arguments developed in natural theology would be the uh, first cause argument and the necessary being argument. Um, and uh, they're, you know, these are challenging arguments, but I think they're worth thinking through, uh, be, not only because they help us to have a, maybe a greater certitude or an additional support to our certainty um, uh, in our faith, uh, but also because of the way that they help us to think about God. So, um, you know, certainly um, the Bible and Genesis tells us, you know, uh, the doctrine of creation, right? We can find that in other area uh, passages in the Bible. We often find in the Bible and sacred scripture, we find uh, affirmations of God's providence, uh, affirmations that God is unchangeable, things of that nature, right? So, those are all, you know, primary data of revelation, and certainly uh, biblical scholars and biblical theology should be used to unpack that and develop it. Um, but another resource, not, not the only, but an additional resource that can be used to kind of thinking about those things is natural theology, right? And those philosophical arguments that are advanced. And these two arguments are ways that Christian theologians have identified over the centuries for sort of exploring those kinds of ideas using philosophical concepts and philosophical arguments, always subject to uh, sacred uh, theology, uh, but something that is, um, gives us additional light. So I'll start with the, the first cause argument. Um, one of the things, uh, the first cause argument uh, is something that you would run across in, in many contexts that are philosophical in nature or apologetic in nature. Often, unfortunately, this argument is uh, very poorly understood. Uh, you've probably heard the thesis that, well, the first cause argument depends on the idea that everything has a cause, right? You've probably heard that. Mm -hmm. right? Yes. Right. Yeah. But, but that's, in fact, incorrect, okay? <laughs> the first thing that I teach all of my students in any context in which this argument comes up is just don't say that. So, <laughs> <laughs> you could say a lot of other things, even if you want to object to the argument, but just don't say that because it's a, mis it's a mischaracterization of the argument. Um, the argument really is rooted in the principle of causality. So this is the idea that every effect or every change has a cause. Everything that comes to be or ceases to be has a cause. No, not everything, right? Everything, every right. That's the, that's the distinction is that not everything has a cause, but every effect obviously has a cause. That's right, yeah. So every effect, every change, everything that comes to be or ceases to be. Now this is, uh, I think in some ways, just a, a, almost a, a maxim of common sense. I mean, if you ask somebody in a, any general setting, you know, well, something happened, do you think that it had a, a cause, right? Most people are gonna say, sure, right? Like, of course, right? You know, it's not even a thing you really question. In some ways, it's almost a presupposition of being rational, right? That is, right. you know, that we just think, you know, things happen and there are explanations for them. Maybe we don't know the explanation, but, the, but there is an explanation, something that brought it about. This is, uh, in effect, a, um, um, in a way, it's a practical level, like this is a rejection of spontaneous, uh, of, like truly completely spontaneous events. Um, I mean, just think about like in your interaction with your children or something like that. You know, you, you know, if your child said, well, it just happened, I don't know, yeah. right? <laughs> Would you take that? Would you accept that? No, yeah, and I actually use this as, a, as uh, to, to augment my parenting skills as well. And I said, <laughs> I tried to explain this to my five-year-old once. It didn't go over so well. So. Gotcha. All right. So the basic idea here is every effect, every change has a cause, has a sufficient explanation. Um, 
And uh, again, this is just a normal operating procedure, right? Whether we're talking about academic disciplines like history or you're talking about medicine, you know, like you want to know why am I having this, um, this bad health effect? You know, if your doctor just says, eh, it just is, you're not going to be satisfied that you want an explanation, right? So um, uh, we operate using this all of the time. Now, what St. Thomas then in particular points out is, well, if we accept that, that every change, every effect has a cause, then if that second, if that cause itself changes, right, mm -hmm. then it must have a prior cause, right? So did you get that point? Yeah. Okay. Go through it one more time. Okay. So, <laughs> so it, you know, if A causes B, right, so yeah. A is the cause of B, B is a change, A is its cause and A itself changes, then by the principle of causality, what should we require? A first cause. That's right, a cause that's prior to A, right? Yeah, a cause is yeah, prior. So, so, so if A is a cause of B, and A itself changes, then A requires a prior cause. Does that make sense? Right, and so we either have to, you know, to take this further, we either have to believe in an infinite regress or we eventually have to get to a first cause. That's right. Yeah. So um, the, um, the question, one way of putting the question is, uh, is or thinking about it is if, if going back to our A and B, if A is a um, changing cause, then it sounds weird. Okay. But just think about it. Then it's a caused cause. cause. Right. <laughs> so it's a Got secondary it. cause, right? That is, it depends on a prior cause. So it's a true cause but it's one that depends on some prior uh, change, some prior causality, some prior principle. Sure. So if you think about it that way, it's, well, what, could an infinite series of secondary causes uh, provide its own explanation? Well, by definition, it couldn't, right? Because secondary causes are dependent causes. So even if you have an infinite series of these dependent causes, they can't account for the very existence, the very efficacy, the very power of that causal change. Does that, does that make sense? Absolutely. If I tell my, you know, my, my child is not going to just clean their room. Mm -hmm. They need that, the, 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 the cleaning of the room. Yes, it's brought about by my child cleaning it, but my child is not the originator of bringing about that change. Right. I, I had to change their mind. <laughs> so I am the first cause of my children cleaning the room. Sure. Yeah. That's very good. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So we can see that you know um, if you start pushing it, right? You start thinking like, well, you know, these causal chains are all around us, right? And we're exploring them, and it's good to explore them. And secondary causes are real causes, but they are dependent causes, and they're all around us. Um, so if you think about the whole, you know, sort of universe, the whole world as a series or networks of secondary causes, what we find is that secondary causes, again, by their very nature, right? are not sufficient to explain their own causal power, their own causal efficacy or existence. And so um, they logically require some prior cause. So one way of thinking about this is, is the natural world sufficiently self-explanatory? And the answer is no, okay? I mean, we can say that there are important explanations that scientists and naturalistic explorations can identify for us, right? But that on the whole, the natural order um, isn't self-explanatory, right? Uh, it requires something that goes beyond that. Right. And we can identify, even though we can identify secondary causes in the world and even preliminary causes to those causes, the world itself cannot provide us 
with that first cause that brings about, like you said, like the, the order of the world or things like that, you know? Yeah. It might, it might prove helpful to think about, you know, the whole network of secondary causes. Sometimes we think of it in terms of lines and that's okay. But I also like to think about it in terms of networks. So that gives you a broader sense of what we're talking about, that that whole reality of secondary causes, right? Uh, that that kind of reality is not ultimately self-explanatory. Right. Right. Um, and so there has to be some kind of reality beyond that kind of reality. And we could call that first causality, right? So that right. the first cause, right, is not first primarily in the sense of time or an order uh, or sequence, right? When we talk about the existence of a first cause, what we're saying is, is that the first cause is uh, the primary cause. It's an ultimate kind of cause. The first cause is a different, almost a different kind of causality. Um, than secondary causality, particularly in this sense. The first cause is independent, right? That is, uh, as uh, distinct from secondary causes, it is an independent cause. It is the kind of cause that can bring about changes, bring about effects without depending on any other cause whatsoever. So in that sense, it's a very different kind of cause than secondary causality. It uh, doesn't depend on prior causes, whereas secondary causes do depend on prior causes. Now, basically, I think at this point, you're left with two choices, right? Either you have to concede that there is a first cause, mm -hmm. uh, or you have to say that the universe is completely irrational, right? Uh, I think it's possible to just say, you know what? This is a logical argument. It leads to these conclu this conclusion, and I don't accept it. Uh, the price of making that move is just saying, well, the world is completely irrational. Now, now here, here's, a, here's an objection I would bring up to that point of somebody just saying, well, it's chaotic and irrational, uh, to which I would ask, well, if, it's, if everything is this chaotic and rational, how is it that we can have a, a book about science? How is it that we, how is it that we can recognize order and rationality in the universe, going all the way to you know the microscopic cell, you know the 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 DNA um, scale? Like we we look at all of these things, even in the, the more and more detail we look at these things, the more and more we see order. How do how does that order stem from chaos? How does that rationality stem from irrationality? Wouldn't it? Wouldn't somebody have to, if they hold that it's rational, but then we can now know it, wouldn't they have to at least then concede that maybe there is something there that is able to turn ra irrationality into rationality? Or right, right. how somebody makes that mental jump? From yeah, I, don't, I think the answer is they don't make it rational. <laughs> right. So I'll give you kind of a standard answer. Uh, sure. um, uh, two, I'll give you two standard answers, uh, but I don't think they hold up. So. One answer is rooted in a kind of kind of a throwing your hands up at it uh, sort of response, which is uh, you can find this in writers like Bertrand Russell and so forth. Uh, the view that well, look, the universe as a whole, this whole second, this whole reality has to just be taken for granted, and only once it's taken for granted, then can we have any rational explanation. That's one kind of answer. Um, Christopher Dawkins also uses this kind of answer. Uh, we just have to say, like, there is no cause, there is no ultimate explanation for reality. Um, you just accept it as a brute fact. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a uh, that's a, a convenient way and kind of unscientific 
uh, approach to it sure. to say, well, you just accept it as fact. Well, it's, the problem isn't so much that it's unscientific. It might be the case that, that it's, it's fine, like science reaches its limits, fine, but that, but, but that reason uh, and that, that scientific investigation does, I guess, presuppose uh, the world in the way it, which it is, but we can. But reason still asks the question: Well, why is it the way it is? <laughs> right? Um, yeah, it, it's it, completely it, unsatisfying. I guess that's that's the that's right. It's like completely unsatisfying to my soul. You know? That's right. Yeah, right, right. So it seems to be basically deposit irrationality at the foundation of the universe. And if irrationality is at the foundation of the universe, there's no good reason to think that the universe is not itself fundamentally irrational. Right. In which right. Case, right. Go to your point earlier, you know, how can we talk about, you know, anything being rational from economics to sociology to biology? So that, that response seems to be problematic. Probably another response that I find interesting is um, kind of in some ways inspired by kind of Kantian agnosticism. And the basic idea here is that, well, while it's true that reason um, can draws this conclusion, that is that reason cannot be satisfied until it reaches the first cause we don't have any way of directly experiencing the first cause. And so that conclusion can't be verified. Um, so a, a popular version of this I've occasionally run into with students is, well, that argument's all very well and good, but it's just logic and language. It's not real yeah. proof, right? And I think that goes to the idea that, well, if we can't experience it in some direct or indirect way, then in fact, um, it's not a definite conclusion. It's not a certain conclusion. Yeah, and I think, it, but I think it's also important. It is a logical conclusion. That's right, so, right. Yeah. You know, which even looking at the whole of natural theology, you know, we we we've looked at these main arguments, uh, the principle of causality, all of these secondary causes. But I think you know uh, something else that kind of goes with this this argument here is that th these are not just kind of the here's what we can know and that's it. That these huh. that these main arguments they have further implications that find sure. that find uh, a more fleshing out uh, mm -hmm. in you know classical theism and in Christianity itself right so, so these arguments aren't to be the end of our thinking but but they're they're there to also be uh, the open to, to leave us open to our to our thinking and to our thinking of, particularly about God and mm -hmm. the the attributes of God and what he is and what he is not. Sure. Um, so, so maybe let's get into maybe some of the implications from these uh, from these arguments. Sure. So, yeah, I think that that um, this is actually one of the, one of the most fruitful aspects of, of this approach is that it gives you sort of a a platform, um, kind of a a peg to hang your hat on, so to speak, in trying to think about uh, the uh, what's classically called the the attributes of God. And, and, and you put it well, actually, think one of the ways to think about this is what God is not. So when we, uh, sometimes, you know, when people hear the first cause argument and say, well, that's all very well and good, but that's not God. And I would concede that, you know, if you just say first cause, well, that doesn't sound very much like what I pray to. But uh, of course, you know, theologians go on to say many, many, many more things, right? <laughs> and oh, yeah. uh, among those many things, you can find this in the Summa Theologia, um, you know, St. Thomas puts this argument, the first cause argument, in the second question. Well, the, the Summa goes on for another four volumes, right? So, <laughs> uh, like, he, he's aware that there's more to say, right? And he, he tries to say a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it. Um, 
So one of the uh, basic ideas I think that you can sort of start to, to broaden your, your thinking about God and deepen your thinking about God is in um, the area of immutability. We tend to think too little, I think, about this kind of thing and too little about about God, right? We tend to think about God too much in just terms of like what God can do for me. And while I, there's certainly, that, that's an understandable perspective to some degree, we also need to, to just focus on God in himself as much as we can. And uh, because that, that benefits, I think, our overall perspective and our overall relationship with God. So one of the things we need to recognize is that God, unlike us, is not changeable. When we say that God is immutable, that prefix im, all right, I am at the beginning of that word means not mutable, not changing. Mm-hmm. So um, why would, might we think that God is immutable? Well, if we accept that, that God is the, the, the first cause, well, we accept first, of course, that the first cause exists, and we accept that God is real as he reveals himself in sacred scripture and so forth. But it's also true to say that God is the first cause, right? That is that the, the God who reveals himself uh, in uh, Revelation reveals himself as the first cause. That is, first cause is a way of talking about God as creator. They're not Mm -hmm. exactly synonymous ideas, but they're very, very close. Sure. Um, So uh, when we think, okay, well, God is first cause, then we can say, well, God must not be changeable. Now, why is that the case? Well, if God changed, then it would be the case that God would require a prior cause, right? Does that make sense? Right, because every change uh, has to have a prior cause. Every effect That's right. has to yeah. have a cause. That's right, yeah. So according to the principle of causality, then God himself would require a cause. So there'd be some prior cause, in which case God would not be a first cause. So what we would have there is a strict contradiction, right? A, uh, an absurdity. This is really kind of brass tacks. Either you accept that God is the first cause or not. If you accept that, then you must accept, right? It logically follows necessarily that God does not change. Now, I think that that introduces all sorts of interesting questions. And yeah, the, the incarnation is the first one that pops in mind. <laughs> well, sure, that's, a, that's a, <laughs> not an easy one, right? Yeah. Um, but, um, and we can actually talk about that, but I think first it's, it's best to kind of just grapple with and maybe even just appreciate kind of uh, what's being said. You know, we go through our lives changing. We don't know of anything outside of maybe mathematical concepts um, that's not subject to change, uh, Mm -hmm. to growth, to coming to be, to decay. That decay can be physical decay, of course, but it could also be psychological. Uh, It could also be um, moral, right? All of those things are things in our experience that are subject to transition, to change, coming to be, ceasing to be. God's not like that at all right? Uh, if, this, if this approach is correct, God is a very different kind of reality, not subject to coming to be, not subject to decay, not subject to arbitrariness, any of those sorts of things, right? Um, by the very status of being God. Uh, does that make sense? There's an infinite chasm between humans and God. I get that. That's right. <laughs> where, where I think a lot of it boils down to is, you know, there, there are things that, again, you know, and I think you hit the nail on the head when you say his very nature is, is completely different in that, in that immutable way. Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, again, it goes beyond uh, our comprehension and any sort of kind of way that we can understand it is going to be analogous, which means mm-hmm. there's going to be a great dissimilarity to the reality of it. Um, but any, any sort of way for us to, to actually understand some of this, it's going to leave it, you know, uh, deficient. 
Um, sure. Not not because not because uh, uh, God is deficient, but because our understanding of it is deficient. Sure. But well, one good thing we can say here, right? So this is a uh, this part of of natural theology is sometimes called the via negativa, right? Or right. The negative way where we deny certain things about God. Um, and one way of thinking about it is deny certain imperfections or deficiencies about God. Now, this is, I think, challenging because we have a tendency to, it is in our own kind of modern worldview, to um, identify change as something inherently good and a lack of change as something inherently bad or static or something. Now, this is, uh, I think, quite interesting. Uh, this is the opposite of the classical worldview, right, in which like change is sign is a sign of a lack of uh, imperfection, right? And permanence, right, is a sign of of perfection, um, so or in superiority. So I think one thing we can sort of grapple with a little bit is is thinking about well, you know, is it the case that that change is inherently good? And what does it kind of mean to say that God is immutable? In addition to sort of eliminating defects, right, we can say, well, God's not subject to coming to be. God doesn't come to be, right? Uh, that means there's never any time in which God was not, which leads us to divine eternity, right? So that mm-hmm. God was eternal. There's also never going to be any time in which um, uh, any future point in which God is not, right? That is, God will not cease to be. And, you know, if you don't hold for immutability, it's very difficult to hold for eternity, right? Right, um, exactly. And I, well, I was going to say, and I think that goes kind of with beginning with the principles of causality, these main arguments that, you know, it's the, the role of philosophy to dive into all of these implications. What, if, you know, and to ask those questions, well, what if we say that God is changeable? Mm-hmm, what else mm-hmm. does that, what else does that lead to? Well, you pointed to a big thing. Well, the eternity of God. Uh, you know? <laughs> what if God was like a very old computer program? You know how computer programs, you know, uh, <laughs> over time kind of develop glitches, right? Yeah. You know, what if it was God, there was a time in which God was very powerful, but he kept going through various processes. And each of those processes include some sort of deficiency or deviant, you know, structure. And so that eventually, you know, the program gets corrupted. I mean, that's kind of a weird way of thinking, kind of a science fiction way of thinking about it. But if God is subject to change, why couldn't he be subject to corruption? Why not? Yeah. Yeah. There's no good reason to say, uh, no good philosophical reason to say that God's not subject to corruption if he's subject to change. And think of how nightmarish that would be if we have a God who corrupts, who decays, whether, again, uh, ontologically in God's being or in God's uh, moral character, right? So uh, immutability, I think, is is quite uh, important. And one thing that's very interesting then is that, you know, in terms of the relationships between the two, right, that is relationships between, you know, the natural order and the divine order, one is changeable and subject to being changed and contingent, whereas mm-hmm. the other is not, right? God is, being immutable is not subject to change and therefore is not contingent. He's not conditioned by anything else. Where, uh, and he's not dependent on anything else. He's perfect. Now, some people respond, well, that makes God sound awfully static, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I, I suppose that could be the case, but that, that, uh, one could, I can see why one might say that. But that only makes sense if you sort of think about it in terms of, well, to, to be active is to be doing lots of different things. Right. Well, in lots of different things, it's usually also the understanding that those lots of different things are ordered towards always becoming better. That's right. And here's well, the, you know, if you if you reach if you reach the point of best, then it mm-hmm. should be good to remain static there. 
you know, like, and that's, that's with God. You know? it, when you are perfection itself, yes, you should remain static because there is no idea of progress. You know, so I mean, even the idea of, well, you know, the, the mutability of God also points to, well, he's imperfect in some way. Sure, that's right. Yeah, I, I think that's that's correct. One other thing I just added to this uh, in terms of the way St. Thomas explains this is that when you think about mutability or motion, right, um, we're talking about the actualization of potential or actualization of mm-hmm. potential, right? And uh, strictly speaking, what you want to say is, well, God is not mutable or changeable because he is so fully actual, right, that he cannot be more actualized than he is. Right. Right. So there's no room for change in God because God is so fully actual. He is pure act, uh, purely being, uh, full of perfection, um, not lacking in anything. Now, what about what about all those uh, omni words that we have when we talk about God? Uh, with sure. you know, uh, omniscient, omnipotent. What do we? What do these tell us about God? In order to understand omni. Um, omniscient, omnipotent, those sorts of things. I think it's helpful to go, to go back to the, the idea of God as first cause. So, so one thing that to maybe think about here is once we have this idea of God as first cause, that helps us, gives us a way of thinking about these various attributes of God, right? That God is immutable, right? Those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Also, once you accept first cause, then that gives you a way of thinking about and understanding, at least in part, what it means for God to be uh, omnipotent or omniscient. So one of the aspects or properties of, of God being first cause is that God is, in a sense, omnicausal. Now that opens up a lot of things to say, but what, I, what, I, what that means, right, omnicausal, is that God is the first cause of every effect or the first cause of every change. Now, note, very importantly, I didn't say the only cause, right? Yeah. Uh, but God is the first cause of every change. Now, this gives us a window onto, at least a partial window, onto thinking about omnipotence and omniscience. Uh, I'll start with omniscience. God knows everything. Okay, now you could ask, well, how does God know everything? Uh, a very bad way of thinking about this is, that God, is to think, well, God's aware of everything, and so he finds it out, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's incorrect, okay? <laughs> God is not learning about the world. Right. Uh, God is not moving from a state of ignorance to a state of knowledge. That would, of course, violate immutability, right, among other things. God knows uh, in a prior sense, right? God's not gaining in knowledge about the world. Rather, God knows everything because he is the first cause of everything. So if you know the, the cause of a thing and God knows himself, then you know its effects. And so since God is the first cause of everything, we can talk about the fact that God, well, we can deduce the fact that he, in fact, um, deduce conclusion that he, in fact, knows about everything. Uh, sometimes you talk about God being omnipresent, right? People like to talk about, you know, God is everywhere. Sure. And certainly we want to affirm that, right? There's the imminence of God. But St. Thomas, of course, asks, like, well, what does that mean? I mean, is it God like in the molecules? Um, you know, is God uh, like some thin substance stretched out? You know, when people say this, sometimes I, uh, I get sort of the sense that it's kind of a mist or something, right? <laughs> um, but that's not the case at all. God is is truly present everywhere. In fact, scarily so, because uh, God is omnicausal. That is, God is the first cause of every effect. So St. Thomas says, God is present as a cause, is present to its effect. So that um, in my inmost being, right, in my thoughts, in my feelings, my passions, 
Um, God is present there because he is the first cause of all of those changes and all of that being. Yeah, no, this brings up, uh, uh, and maybe this is too big, too heavy for all of this, and it does definitely need to be its own podcast. But when we get into this idea that God is first cause of every effect, mm-hmm. um, but like you said, not the only, how do we, how do we bring, how do we address the issue of, well, this had, you know, these actions had an evil effect. Did God cause evil? Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, <laughs> that's a great question. That's the 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 question, the problem of the evil, question. You know, yeah. and and you know, there there are a lot of what I would consider cop out answers to this. I, I remember sometime one time being in a conversation with someone, and something mis- unfortunate happened in my own life, something uh, undesired, and mm-hmm. I said, "Well, you know, um, I guess this is part of what what God wants for my life, and there's something I'm supposed to learn from this, or something I'm to be brought to in this." They were said, oh, no, 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 God didn't do that, right? Um, uh, you, know, you know, the devil did it or something of that nature, right? Yeah. And I thought about that a little bit. And, and the person had also been recommending to me to pray and to trust that God would bring about some good. Now, I didn't say this, but I thought to myself, well, you know, if God, how do I, why do I think that God, praying to God can bring about some good effect if God is not omnicausal? Do, do you follow me, right? Um, I have to accept both sides of that coin, I think, to some degree. That is, if I'm going to say God is omnicausal, then I have to, I can think God can change this situation, right? Because he is omnicausal. Every change is subject to him as first cause. Does that make sense? Yeah. I can have confidence in that. The flip side of that is I also have to recognize that God's providence, I would say, covers both good and evil. Now, by saying that, I don't mean that God is directly responsible for evil, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, I think it would be uh, silly and um, and really just not an, an, a serious engagement with Scripture to think that, um, that that providence doesn't include certain events that are evil, right? So we know very clearly from uh, from the New Testament, right? The Jesus, you know, the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, was it just or was it unjust, Jason? Yeah, it was unjust, right? right. Was, it, was it part of God's definite plan? Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I just go back to, yeah, St. Uh, uh, Augustine, oh, happy fault. Right, sure. Uh, right. Yeah, no, no, no. You know, you want to say, no, Augustine, it was not, you know, original sin was not good. But, but yeah, he refers to it. You know, I even have a, a, a friend who has that on a black vestment. It's absolutely, <laughs> That's you know, of Felix Culpa, right. you know, right. like it's, it's, it's absolutely beautiful, but it, but I, but it gets at, you know, I think, you know, the, the, the heart of, of, of God's uh, providence and love, mm-hmm. um, but also the, the, my lack of understanding also. So it's quite, <laughs> well, so I, you know, I think, you know, it, you know the New Testament, uh, affirms right uh that that this you know the crucifixion of christ was part of god's definite plan and and so what we have to reconcile ourselves to is that god's providence might include some things that we can recognize uh as evil now what's the technical the the technical way of addressing this sure um and that is to say that evil is the privation of some good right? right so when i think about natural evil for example my eyes are bad eyes and therefore i have to have glasses um, they're not morally evil, but they're, they're bad eyes because I can't right. see well with them. And that's why I need glasses. Uh, the evil there, um, the natural evil is a lack of proper order in the eyes, the optic nerves, the lens, et cetera. 
that lack of proper order is why my eyes are bad. There's not some positive badness, you know, in my eye that you could identify, right? Does yeah, your eyes are not working against you to cause you to see things <laughs> that are not there, you know, or, yeah, or a broken clock. You know, a broken clock is not, you know, attempting to tell you the wrong time. It's just, right. it's not it's not working properly. It's not right. working according to its order. So, so, uh, so then in moral evil, what we could say is, well, what, what is moral evil? Well, moral evil is also involves a lack, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a blameworthy lack. So a lack of proper order. So if a husband has sex with someone other than his wife, right, that is the sin of adultery. What's, you know, what's the evil there? Well, there's no positive evil in the sexual act as such. I mean, it could be, according to the natural species, the same kind of sexual act he might have with his wife. So there's no positive evil there, right? There's not some thing that's evil. That right. person that he's ha- uh, having sex with might not be positively evil. Uh, what, what, what is, what's the evil there? Well, the lack of that person being his wife, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> so that lack of the marital bond, right? That lack of fidelity to the marital bond that he had already contracted. That's where the sin is, right? That's where the, the moral evil is. So what we can say is, is that God is the cause of good, but since God is the cause of change and being, but he's not the cause of non-being, right? That is, there is no cause of non-being, right? Non-being is just a lack. It's a nothing. Right. And so uh, God, as first cause, is the cause of all being and change, but not the cause of privation. Right. And I think that, I think that goes to the heart of the point. And I think it's important, you know, whenever you're talking to somebody about this, to to begin with, okay, define evil. What do you? How do you see evil? Because again, a lot the way a lot of people understand evil is is that it is this uh, absolutely negative thing that is positively working mm-hmm. on something else, as opposed to you know the 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 classical understanding that evil is a privation of, of good. In, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, and one other, I think, just perspective to bring to it, and is that, as you indicated, this is a huge topic, so we're going to kind of touch on the main. Sure. Heads. One of the other perspectives to bring in here is, is the reality of secondary causes. So saying yeah. that God is the first cause of every effect doesn't mean he's the only cause. Yeah. Uh, very, in the very classical way, and again, this is classical across, I think, Catholic and at least traditional uh, classical Protestant theology, is the idea that there are secondary causes and that secondary causes are real causes. Secondary causes do really cause, they just cause dependently. Now, we have no direct insight into what first causality is like because we have no direct experience of God, but we can form some kind of rough estimation just in this sense that unlike secondary causes, like secondary causes cause only in the mode in which they properly operate, right? They have a very limited form of causality. First causality is a much richer form of causality. It's primary causality. And so it's not limited to just one mode of causality. So it's actually able to cause secondary causes to operate in a way that's proper to their being, not proper to just its own being. Yeah, right. and I think that's I think that's important to remember also when we're you know when you're talking about primary and secondary causes, and you made this point earlier that you don't when you talk of you know first cause or or primary cause that you're not you're not simply talking about in the order of of effects there right. was this first one that it is in in a way you know almost different in nature yeah uh, mm-hmm. in, in the way that it causes yeah it's a different level of causality a different kind yeah. of causality. 
that is real uh, and operative and primary, but it's not the only form of causality. And again, secondary causes remain secondary causes. Now, I don't want to sort of take too much of the edge off, though, of what I'm saying here, because I actually think this is rather important, that, you know, God knows what he's doing, right? So, you know, he, he, he is permitting, that is, he's permitting bad things to happen in this world. And I'm going to go ahead and say permitting bad things to happen in this world that he could have probably prevented. prevented. And I think we just have to sort of bite the bullet on that one. It's tough, right, to bite the bullet on that one especially when we're going through suffering, especially when we see uh, difficult things in the world. But I think that that is a view that is in keeping what we know, know with revelation. It's logical. Uh, it follows that is from first causality and the first cause argument. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it, sh- it does. And this is one of the, the benefits I think that, that flows from this kind of thinking is it really should stimulate our spiritual lives and stimulate our, contemplation. There's a great prayer by uh, John Henry Newman where he, the the prayer begins, you know, uh, God has created me for some definitive service. Um, But in that prayer, you know, he talks about, you know, uh, in my suffering, let me serve him in my suffering. But he Mm -hmm. he has the phrase in there twice, which I find interesting. He says that God knows what he is about. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and he brings that up at the very end of the prayer. At the very end of the prayer, he says, you know, still he knows what he is about. Right. That there yeah. is this, 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 you know, transcendence to, to the things of this world, uh, mm-hmm. to our understanding of, of this world even. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, there's, uh, I mean, I think one of the, uh, a book that had a profound uh, influence on, on me was um, the book Abandonment to Divine Providence. Um, yeah short little book, uh, but it's bracing, right? I mean, it's, it's a spiritual, it's spiritual writing, so it's not done the philosophical way, uh, but it presupposes a lot of uh, these same ideas um, and challenges us, I think, to, um, to accept divine providence uh, in our lives, in history, to a degree that we, we often don't. You know, I mean, lots of times people say, well, you know, God is in charge. And, but, okay, yeah, yeah, really he is this should give us a different perspective, a, a supernatural perspective, a, a deeply theistic perspective on the events of our own lives, on our own suffering, um, suffering of those around us. And, 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 I, and I guess when it's challenging. Like you said, you know, the, you know, one of the benefits is that this aids our learning about God, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, it also, uh, you know, supports, and we'll get into this probably more, that this supports a Christian worldview. Sure. You know, that, mm-hmm. that, you know, and I think that's that's kind of the, the, the first step when we talk about, you know, uh, whether it be apologetics or just engaging the outside world, mm-hmm. is that we have to first have this Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. This Christian worldview is supported by natural theology. It's supported by these uh, um, this understanding of causality, this understanding of who God is and the implications of that. Sure. And like you had said, you know, it's uh, uh, gr- it's a great resource for contemplation. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sit there and, so, yeah, I mean, the, one of the things I, I find, you know, I mean, uh, a lot of people struggle with prayer, myself included, uh, sometimes are richer and easier than others, of course. But uh, one of the things that I find is that, you know, uh, a lot of our prayer, of course, is asking for things and that's fine to share a prayer, but the kind of contemplative prayer, worshipful prayer, those, you know, should be part of our prayer life. And I find that these kinds of concepts um, these kinds of ideas, you know, I've said several times, are challenging, but I think it's good for us to kind of, in our prayer lives, rest in that challenge, to sort of say, you know what, God, I, I, 
I get it. Like, I, I'm not really, I'm really not in charge. You're really in charge. I don't know what to do with this thing that's happening in my life, but I believe it's part of your plan. And I really believe it's part of your plan, right? You know, those are, those are difficult things to be, uh, difficult places to be. Um, but I think ideas like divine providence uh, help us uh, to do that. They just, they, they open our minds to a broader way of thinking about God. One that I think is, um, I think in, in times of difficulty can be really heartwarming uh, in the true sense, right? That is that they, they can stimulate piety, uh, submission, and humility at the, at, the, at the best. I think kind of that those realizations in prayer can actually be God giving us consolation. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, our, in our, you know, particularly whatever situation it may be, that it could be, you know, God's consolation for us to understand, getting into the details and the intellectual side of, you know, of, of who he is. Well, I think that's sure. a, a great place to wrap this up. That does it for us here today at Take Every Thought Captive. We want to thank our audience for uh, joining us today. Please check us out at catholicstudiesacademy.com. Until then, God bless.